right, you guys can turn to the book of James. While you do, I will explain to you uh, why we have chosen the title we have for the series of James, Undivided. I'll explain it by sharing a little story with you from high school. Um, when I was in high school, um, I had the same goal that every high school guy does. I wanted to impress attractive girls. And so when I was in high school, I played tennis. Uh, if you didn't know, there's a lot of attractive girls that play tennis. That's one of the reasons tennis is so much better than football or wrestling or something like that. Guys only sports. Who wants to do that? Um, so I played tennis. So did my best friend. So one day we invited a couple of those attractive girls to play a game of doubles tennis with us on the neighborhood courts. Uh, and it started well. We were playing well. We were holding our own. We were looking good. Uh, and then about midway through the game, it was my partner's turn to surf. So I'm up at the net, for those of you who know tennis. Um, but it's just taken forever. Um, I'm waiting and waiting for his serve. I keep hearing the ball bounce on the ground, bounce on the ground, but no serve. I'm wondering what's going on. And so I turn around to face my partner right at the perfect moment for him to serve the ball into my groin. Um, and, and he served it fast. It was a really good serve other than the whole accuracy thing. And um, technically speaking, a tennis ball is, is fairly soft. It's fairly flexible. But when it hits you down there, it might as well be made of cement. I, I just fell to the ground, hit the deck, curled up in a fetal position, wept like a baby, rocking back and forth with a hand over my mouth to keep myself from throwing up. Now, if you are trying to impress an attractive girl... That's pretty much the worst possible position to be in. If I could have thought about anything other than the intense pain I was in, I would have been thinking about the fact that this is probably the worst moment of my whole life. Probably the most embarrassing moment. I will never forget it. Now, when I finally recovered, like 10 minutes later, and we started the game again, uh, my partner and I didn't play so well. Uh, First of all, because it's really hard to play tennis when you can't stand up straight. And second, because you can't win a game of doubles tennis... If you don't present a united front. Every time my partner went to hit the ball, I ran off the court. He went left, I went right. We were divided, and as a result, we couldn't win. If you are divided, you can't win. Even if you have the greatest players, a team that is divided will lose. And James wants us to understand that same principle applies to us as individuals. If you want to live a life that is blessed... If you want to live a life that works, a life that is full of God's joy and peace and favor, then you must live an undivided life. Let me explain that to you, um, what James has in mind by this idea of undivided. You see, many, if not most of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, most of us live a divided life. We we divide ourselves because we want to hold on to both God and this world. We we split ourselves. We divide ourselves between God and this world because we love God. We want to cling to God. We want to know God, but we also love this world too. We love what this world offers, the possessions, the pleasures, the fame that this world offers. We want both. And so we divide our allegiance between God and the world. I give this part of my life to God. I give this part of my life to the world. That is the divided life. And James wants us to understand, just like division doesn't work in athletics, so it doesn't work in life either. The divided life is a life of failure. To use James' language for you, this is what we will see as we go through the book this semester. The divided life is a life that steals joy from us. It's a life that robs us of peace and security. 
It's a life that empowers sin and temptation in us. It's a life that harms other people, that hurts the people we love. It's a life that makes a fool of us. It's a life that brings God's discipline upon us. And to use James' summary term, you'll see this over and over again throughout the book of James, the divided life is a life of death. A life devoid of everything good that God wants to give you. If you divide your allegiance between God and this world, you will live a life of defeat and death. Now, I don't think any of us want this kind of life. This does not sound appealing, I assume, to any of us. God doesn't want this kind of life for you either. And so God inspired James to write this book that is dedicated to teaching us how to live undivided lives how to live lives that are wholly devoted, completely dedicated to God. That's the goal of James, to teach us how to live an undivided life. And I want to introduce you to the, to the book of James and to this big idea of living undivided for God by focusing this morning just on the first verse. So James 1.1, that's all we're going to look at this morning, just James 1.1. Let's read it real quick. James 1.1, he starts... James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. James tells us a number of things in this verse. Uh, We'll start by looking actually at the end of the first line. James tells us that the undivided life begins with undivided faith. Undivided faith, that is the first step of living the undivided life. I want you to look uh, in particular at the two persons that James mentions at the end of the first line. The first is God. God. James is going to mention God often throughout this book, actually 16 times. He will mention God by name in the book of James, and at no point does he attempt to explain or defend his faith in God. He, he just assumes it. He, he starts out with the assumption that God exists. He assumes that, that you agree with that, that God exists. He assumes you agree with him that the God of the Bible is the one true God. He assumes you believe that the God of the Bible is your father. He will call God father three times. Again, no explanation, no defense. He just assumes we all know that God is our father. He assumes that we know that our God is good and infinite and powerful and sovereign. And all of these things are simply assumed in James. He begins with the presupposition that you know and want to grow in relationship with God. Okay, so uh, the undivided life begins with faith in God. Second person mentioned is who? Jesus. Uh, And notice there's a couple things that James says about Jesus. First, he says that Jesus is Lord. The Lord Jesus. Now that, that word, that title, Lord, is very significant coming from the lips of a Jew like James in this context. For a Jew to call Jesus Lord in this context, uh, what he is doing is actually equating Jesus with God because that's what that title does. The title Lord in a context like this from the mouth of a Jew means God. Lord is looking at God in his authority as king of kings over the entire universe. So James is, is, is ascribing deity to Jesus, that Jesus is God, that he is equal to God. Now, we need to pause for a moment and and reflect upon how radical that was for a Jew to say. 
For a first century Jew to call Jesus God, Lord, that was incredibly radical because James grew up uh, with the Old Testament, which includes verses like this, Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is actually, just so you know, most famous verse in the whole Old Testament. If the Jews were to summarize the entire Old Testament in one verse, this was it. This was the first verse you memorized, the verse you had to own as a Jew. It's called the Shema, the Statement of Jewish Faith, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Judaism was the first strictly monotheistic religion on earth. The Lord is one. There is only one God. As Isaiah would put it later, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The core of Judaism is monotheism, that there is one and only creator, almighty God. And actually within Judaism, to call anyone or anything else God was blasphemy. You know, what what was the penalty for that in the Old Testament? They killed you. It was the death penalty for that sin. So for a Jew to call Jesus Lord, that was radical. There is a, a whole religious revolution contained in that one word, Lord, used of Jesus. So James wants us to understand Jesus is God. He is equal with God. That's actually the first part of what we call the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ begins with this fact that Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, the Son of God. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part of the gospel is encapsulated by that second title that James uses for Jesus, Christ may not know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, It's not like an extension of his name. Christ is a title. It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew title from the Old Testament, Messiah. And and Messiah in the Old Testament, Messiah referred to, to God's perfect priest and king who would come and deliver his people who would deliver the Jewish people and make everything right. This is the the guy whom God would send to fix everything wrong in the world and bring us salvation. And the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah, reveals that this Messiah would make all things right through death. He would die for our sins. He would die in our place so that we could be saved. That's what Jesus did. When you call Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus is the promised Messiah. The perfect king and priest who would die for our sins so that we could be saved. That's what Jesus did. He died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be saved. So when you call Jesus Lord and Christ, you are summarizing the gospel. That's the whole gospel in its shortest possible form. Jesus is Lord and Christ, meaning he is the son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could be saved. So James starts with that great news, that gospel about Jesus. But then here's the really weird thing. After pointing us to Jesus, after saying so much, so succinctly about Jesus Christ, James hardly ever again mentions Jesus in this book. Actually, the name Jesus will only be mentioned one other time in the whole book. Jesus is mentioned by name fewer times in James than any other book in the New Testament except Third John, and that doesn't really count because that book only has 15 verses. Can't really compare to that. James hardly ever talks about Jesus. Why is that? Why, after starting with calling Jesus Christ and Lord, why does he never mention him? Because James assumes we already know him. 
James assumes we already know Jesus and believe in Jesus. He assumes that we have already found eternal life in Jesus. It is so, so crucial that you understand this. As we enter into the book of James, he presupposes faith. James is not evangelistic. It's not like the Gospels designed to introduce you to Jesus. Uh, And James isn't like the letters of Paul designed to, to defend and explain your belief in Jesus. No, he assumes all that. He assumes you got that. He assumes you already know and are following Jesus. Look with me, chapter two, verse one, actually the only other verse in the whole book that mentions Jesus by name. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not hold your faith. He assumes you already know Jesus. James is not designed to introduce you to Jesus or defend your belief in Jesus. He assumes you already know Jesus. James' burden is to say, okay, now that you already do know Jesus, how do you live faithfully to him? How do you live the life, a life that is completely devoted to him? That is what James is about. Okay, so what we need to understand is if we want to live this undivided life, we have to begin with faith. The first step of the undivided life is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to live a life of joy and peace, of significance and blessing and reward, it begins by putting your faith in God and Jesus Christ. Trusting that Jesus really did die for your sins in your place and rise from the dead. That is the one and only way to start this life of blessing. That's contrary to what our world says. Our society says that there are many different ways to God. Just pick your religion. No one religion is more valid than another. No, James says, there is only one way to God. There is only one way to life, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. So if you're here this morning, um, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not yet reached that place where you are convinced, that's what faith is, conviction that something is true. If you are not yet convinced that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead, that is the one and only thing you need to think about this morning. Because without that, you, you can't live the undivided life. You cannot enjoy God's blessing without beginning in faith. If there's something holding you back from, from being convinced, being persuaded that Jesus, the Son of God, really did die for your sins and rise from the dead, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. The rest of the series of James is not going to be worthwhile to you because he assumes we've already believed. The undivided life begins, step number one, with undivided faith in God and in Jesus Christ. But faith in Jesus is not enough. Faith in Jesus is not enough alone to experience all that God has for you. If you want to live a life of God's blessing, of God's favor, you need more than just faith in the gospel. That's where you begin. But God also wants, second step of the undivided life, your undivided devotion. If you want to live a life enjoying all of God's blessings, you need to follow faith with devotion. God wants our undivided devotion. Look again at the beginning of verse 1. First begins with an introduction. James. Author simply names himself. I am James. He tells to his audience. Now, who is this James guy? Lots of Jews in the first century with the name James. Actually, a lot of guys named James in your Bible, but there's only one who could write a book this convicting and with this much authority, and that is James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Younger half-brother of Jesus. So just to put this together in your mind, remember, um, Jesus was born supernaturally. 
Jesus was not biologically conceived. Jesus had no biological father. While Mary was still a virgin, God, the Holy Spirit, caused Mary to conceive Jesus. Jesus was her first child. But after Jesus was born, she and Joseph were, were married, and then they had children the normal way. And that one of those children the normal way is James, the younger half-brother through Mary of Jesus. And so James grew up with Jesus. He grew up hearing Jesus talk. He grew up seeing what Jesus did. He grew up seeing what Jesus cared about. That's why it will not surprise you as you go through the book of James, it's going to sound a lot like Jesus is talking. Actually, James and Jesus, particularly like the Sermon on the Mount, are incredibly close. Incredibly close. You will often feel like you're hearing Jesus speak as we study James, because James grew up with him. He heard his older brother talking all the time. Um, But when Jesus began his ministry, it's important to know, James was actually a skeptic during Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus began his ministry and began to proclaim to people that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, James did not believe it at first. And to be honest, I I can't blame the guy. Um, (laughs) If my brother claimed to be God, I would be a skeptic of that. I would be a little skeptical. I would say, well, um, Matt, I, I saw how messy you were growing up, and I, I watched you go through those awkward years of puberty. Um, you, you ain't God. There's just no way that you are God. I think James and his brothers felt the same way. Jesus is God, yeah, but, but he had to learn how to read and how to write. He had to grow up. He had to go through those awkward years of puberty, just like we did, human in every way accepting sin. And James and his brothers saw Jesus growing up, and as a result, it was really hard for them to turn that corner and believe this guy, our older brother, is the son of God. So James was a skeptic until something incredible happened, something shocking happened. His older brother was crucified and then resurrected. And James was actually one of the witnesses of that resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, James is listed as one of the people to whom Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection. And from that point on, actually John 7, 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. From that point on, though, after the resurrection, James was completely transformed. James was an absolutely, utterly new person after seeing the resurrected Jesus. He began to follow Jesus. He began to preach Jesus. He began to actually lead in Jesus' church. James became an apostle. He actually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was given great authority as he followed his older brother. James was radically transformed after seeing the resurrected Jesus. So by the time we meet James in the book of James, he's a very different person. He's no longer a skeptic about Jesus. Instead, what does he say about himself? He is a bondservant of God and of his older half-brother, Jesus Christ. James is a bondservant. Literally in Greek, it's the word doulos. Doulos, for those of you who are in our freshman Bible studies, we call them doulos because of verses like this. Um, Now, doulos in most of your English translations is translated servant. Um, and that's, that's okay. The problem is this idea of servant can, can kind of lead us to the wrong idea about what James is saying. When you hear the word servant, what do you usually think of? You usually think of like a, a guy who works in a mansion, right? Like a butler or a valet or a maid. Um, somebody who works for a wealthy person. That's a servant. Now, they work hard, but, but it's really just a job. They, they work hard and, and get paid as a result. And they only have to work certain days a week. And they can quit at any time. Well, that's a servant. That's not a doulos. Doulos does not mean servant in that sense. Doulos means slave. 
That's a much better translation of the word. Doulos in the ancient world meant a slave. So um, when James calls himself a slave, a slave is not somebody who works part-time. A slave is not a servant. A slave is a a a 365-day-a-year, 24-hour-a-day kind of commitment. You are always a slave. And and a slave works for the master without pay. You don't get pay from the master. You can't quit whenever you want. A slave is an owned person. That's what James is saying about himself. God and Jesus own him. He has no rights of his own anymore. He belongs completely to his master. He is called to give his master complete and total devotion. That is how James saw himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's how he wants us to see ourselves as well. James wants us to understand we too are to be slaves of Jesus Christ. Holy, devoted to him, giving him our complete, undivided devotion. I think what James is trying to do by pointing us, beginning with this word slave, is he is trying to correct this common misperception in the Christian life. There's this common misperception. You hear it all the time. There's this common misperception that life can be divided into two realms, right? I have the, the sacred realm over here, and I have the secular realm over here. Sacred part of my life, that's Sunday mornings. You're here. Uh, That might be Wednesday night Bible study. That might be quiet times in the morning before you head off. That's the, the sacred part of my life. God gets that part of my life. Jesus, you can have that. And then there's the secular part of my life, all the other time. When I'm going to school, when I'm working my job, when I'm sleeping, when I'm eating, when I'm uh, enjoying entertainment, when I'm having sex with my spouse, all of those other things, those belong to me. God, you can have the sacred, but the secular belongs to me. That's such a common misperception in the Christian life. James wants us to understand that is not how life works. A slave is a 365 day a year, 24 hour a day kind of commitment. You don't get to divide life into different parts as a slave of Jesus Christ. All of it belongs to him. I love how Abraham Kuyper puts it. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus says, I get all of you. I get all of your life. There is no sacred, secular distinction because you're my slave. As my slave, when you eat, when you go to class, when you work, when you sleep, when you hang out with friends, when you have sex with your spouse, when you participate in a hobby, when you play a sport, you're doing all of that as my slave. And so all of it is sacred. That's what James wants you to understand. Your entire life is sacred because all of it is owned by Jesus. He demands your devotion 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. All of us belongs to him. We're to give Jesus our complete and undivided devotion, obeying him in every sphere of life. That's why it's not surprising that James will so often throughout this book remind us of the importance of obedience over and over again. Let's just read a few of these verses that we'll come back and study in greater detail later. Chapter one, verse 22 James says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Chapter 2, verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Chapter 4, verse 17. 
Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Over and over again, James will bring us back to the importance of obedience. Our entire lives are to be in obedience to Jesus Christ. He gets to direct everything. We're to follow him in every sphere of our life, in everything that we do. James is just going to continually bring us back to the commands of Christ. In fact, when you add it up, you'll find that in the, 50, in the 108 verses of James, there's 54 commands. That's actually the highest percentage per word of any book in the New Testament. James is just so focused on bringing us to the importance of obedience, to complete an undivided devotion to our master, to Jesus Christ. Over and over again, James wants us to understand the undivided life requires undivided devotion. You must completely, fully obey Jesus Christ in every way if you want to enjoy the blessing and joy, peace and and, and fullness that God has for you. Okay, so step number one of the undivided life is undivided faith in God and in Jesus Christ. Step number two is undivided devotion, complete, whole devotion to Christ. That's step number two. Finally, step number three, to enjoy this life of blessing that God has for you is undivided allegiance. Undivided allegiance. Look back at verse one. Look back at verse one. Let's look at the end of the verse now. We've talked about the author. We've talked about God and Jesus. Now the second part of the verse, the the audience that James was writing to, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now how James describes his audience is actually really significant. 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. You actually learn a lot from that little short uh, description. 12 tribes tells you he's talking to Israelites, to Jews. That's just a way that they referred to one another. He's talking to Jews, and when he says dispersed abroad, um, that's actually a technical term, a way to refer to Jews who lived outside of Israel. So he's talking to believing Jews. Remember, he assumes their faith. Believing Jews who live outside of Israel. Now, how did those believing Jews get out there? Remember, James is in Jerusalem. He seems to know these folks. Why is it that they have left Jerusalem and the church that they were in to to go out and live among the Gentiles? Well, actually, the book of Acts tells us. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is actually giving you some of the background for the book of James. On the day that Stephen was martyred, it tells us that on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Same basic word idea. They were scattered out of Jerusalem by persecution. They were suffering for the faith, and so they they had to leave Jerusalem if they wanted to stay alive. Now, God used that scattering for good. We're told a couple verses later, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So God scattered his people so that they would take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. But even though God had a good purpose for that scattering, it was pretty painful for these believing Jews. Their life was really quite painful. We'll find out as we go through the book of James. They were suffering. It was difficult to be a a Jew in the first century who believed in Jesus Christ living in the Gentile world. That was really difficult because um, as you went about this Gentile world, you didn't fit in with other Jews. There were Jews throughout the world, but you couldn't go hang out with these Jews in whatever city you landed in because they didn't like you very much. As soon as you start talking about Jesus, they're getting real uncomfortable because remember, to them, that's still blasphemy. They're looking to kill you. They don't want anything to do with you. And so you don't fit in with other Jews, and you certainly don't fit in with the Gentiles. That's everybody else, if you want to know. Jew, Gentile, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Parthians, everyone who's not a Jew, they don't like you very much either. 
You see, the Gentiles lived, um, by our standards, pretty immoral lives, pretty ungodly lives. They did all the things that the Jews knew they, they couldn't do, they shouldn't do. Um, and, and, and as the Jews entered these, these secular cities, these Gentile cities, and saw all of the immorality, they saw really quickly, we don't fit in with these folks. If we're not going to do what they do, they don't want to hang around us. In fact, to them, our lifestyles look uh, comical. We look ridiculous to them. We look like prudes to them. We look silly and foolish to them, worshiping a crucified carpenter. The Gentiles just dismissed these believing Jews. At worst, they ridiculed and ostracized them. So these believing Jews, they don't fit in anywhere. They move to cities where they are completely ostracized by everybody. And what is our temptation when we don't fit in? To compromise. That's what they're tempted to do, to compromise with society around them so that they can fit in. We all struggle with that too. When we feel like we don't fit in, we are tempted to compromise. For most of us, it began uh, like in elementary school with that thing called peer pressure. Um, we, we love our parents. We, we love the, the values and commands that our, our parents in, uh, taught us. Uh, we, we love them and want to please them. Uh, but we also love our friends, don't we? We love our friends. We, we want to please our friends. We want to be popular with our friends. Well, that's all well and good until there is a conflict between the values of your parents and the values of your friends. For me, uh, one of the instances of that was around uh, fireworks. You see, my, my parents, they valued my bodily safety. And so they prohibited me from playing with fireworks if there was not uh, adult supervision around. Um, so that's fine. That's, that's great. Problem was, my friends loved fireworks. In fact, the guys in my neighborhood, the boys I grew up with, they loved to play tag with bottle rockets. I don't know if you've ever tried that. Uh, maybe a little dangerous, but crazy fun. Crazy fun. They, they love to play bottle rocket tag. Um, and, and if I was uh, going to not participate in them, if I was going to follow my parents' values, well, I was going to miss out on a lot, of, a lot of fun. Now, I know we were idiots. All 10-year-old boys are idiots. But um, really, it looked like I was going to miss out on all this fun. And worst of all, if you were a kid in my neighborhood who didn't play bottle rocket tag, you were labeled a sissy. No 10-year-old boy wants to be called a sissy. And so I faced a choice. Am I going to cling to my parents' values or am I going to cling to my friends' values? That's a choice we face every day. Every day of our lives living in this world, we face a choice. Are we going to cling to God's values or the world's values? God, as our loving, gracious Father, has really clearly communicated his values to us, his commands to us. He has taught us clearly what is right and what is wrong. But we live in a world that disagrees with those commands. We live in a world that has contrary values, that loves the things that God does not love, that practices the things that God despises. And so we face this choice every day. Am I going to cling to God's values or am I going to cling to the world's values? Students, especially those of you who are freshmen, you face this choice right now. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home with godly, loving parents who taught you what is right, who taught you how to walk with the Lord. Well, you're about to, to walk onto a very big playground where a lot of the kids are doing what you know is wrong. They're doing, they're valuing what you know you should not do, what you should not value. And so you face this choice right now. Are you going to cling to the values of God or are you going to cling to the values of the world? Now, when we face that choice between clinging to the values of the world and clinging to the values of God, what do we usually try to do? We usually try to keep both of them. 
don't we? That's how most of us live. That's the divided life. I, I try to cling to both. I love God. I, I value what God values. I want what God offers. And so I try to cling to God as best as I can. Problem is, I also love this world. I love the things this world provides. Possessions, fame, popularity, pleasures, all that this world provides. I want that too. And so I try to cling to both of them. I want to love God and I want to love this world. That's what we do. James has something to say to that attempt, to our attempt to hold on to both God and this world. Turn to chapter four, verse four. You can underline this verse. I think it's uh, one of, if not the most significant verse in the whole book, really the theme verse for the book. Chapter four, verse four. Starts a little harshly. (laughs) You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, what James is saying is you can't have both. Simply can't do it. You cannot have both. You can't hold on to both God in this world. It's like trying to play Switzerland during World War II. Switzerland, which, which tried to be neutral in this battle between good and evil. They just want to be friends with everybody. Enjoy the benefits of the allies and the Nazis. no. It doesn't work that way. If you're a friend of the Nazis, you're no friend of mine. You can't be neutral in a war between good and evil. So it is with us. We cannot be neutral in this conflict between God and righteousness and the world and sin. It's simply not possible because God is is absolutely perfect. He is completely holy, completely righteous, completely good. He cannot compromise with evil. And so you must choose You must choose whom you'll follow. You must choose whom you'll love. Will you cling to and embrace God and his values or will you cling to and embrace the values and practices of the world? You can only have one. It's one or the other. Okay, now what happens if I choose to hold to the values of the world? Let's talk about that for a moment. James says we are no longer friends of God. What does he mean by that? Well, let's go back to my example with the fireworks. If I chose to jump into that game of bottle rocket tag, which just so you know, I never did because I really was a sissy as a little boy. <laughs> so I never, never played that game, but I wanted to. Uh, but regardless, if I would have jumped in and played that game, what would have happened? Well, my parents would have still loved me. It's not like they're going to kick me out of the house. No, I'm still their son. I still belong to them. They still love me. But things would not have been very friendly between us, would it? No, I, I would have been disciplined. My backside would have been in pain as a result of my choice to cling to the values of my friends. Well, so it is in our relationship with God. If we cling to the values of this world, God doesn't disown us. He still loves us. We're still his children, but things are not very friendly between us. Instead of enjoying God's blessing, we come under his discipline. Just like disobedient children, he begins to discipline us so that we will grow out of that nasty habit of disobedience. So if you want to experience joy in your relationship with God, if you want to be on friendly terms with your heavenly father, you have to give him your complete and undivided allegiance. That's why James will actually um, help us summarize the book, end of chapter one. If you look at the end of chapter one, a verse we will focus a lot of attention on. Verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
Now, we'll talk about all that in greater detail. Now, just look at the end. One of the two marks of pure and undefiled religion, true religion, is keeping oneself unstained by the world, not letting the values of the world rub off on you. James wants to help you to live an undivided life, a life of undivided devotion and allegiance to God. Now, the challenge for all of us is that all of this is easy to say, but it's a little tough to practice. Because we live in this world. This is where you work. This is where you sleep. This is where you have friends. This is where you hang out. You live in this world. It's home for now. And you need the things of this world. You need food and and shelter and a car to drive to work. You, You need the things that this world provides. And so how do you live in this world without loving this world? That's what James is going to teach us to do. How to live in the world but not love the world. All of James, you could summarize it all as teaching us how to do that. You can call it wisdom. That's what James will mean by wisdom. He will give you wisdom throughout this book. Wisdom, which is is instructions for skillful living. That's really what wisdom literature is. Instructions for skillful living in a hostile world. You have to live here. It's not like you can pick some other world to live in. You got to live in this hostile world. And so while you live here, how do you make sure that you don't come to love the world, that your love is wholly devoted to God and not to the things of this world. How do you live in the world but not love the world? That's the book of James, and it is full of wisdom designed to teach you how to live that kind of life. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this semester, learning how to live this undivided life, a life of undivided faith in God and in Jesus Christ, a life of undivided devotion to them, a life of undivided allegiance to God, wholly devoted to him. That's the goal of James. He assumes you already believe. Now that you believe, how do you live a life that is wholly devoted to God? That's where we're going this semester. Now to prepare us for that, I just want to give you a couple, a few steps to consider, a few practical things. First, I want to encourage you this week to read the entire book of James in one sitting. It's going to be the best way to to get your mind into the book of James and get prepared for where we're headed this semester. Just sometime this week, sit down and read it as it was meant to be read. Remember when James wrote it, it was not divided into chapters or verses. It was just a letter like you would get from a friend. So just read it all the way through in one sitting. And as you read it, be asking yourself, what is James teaching me about the undivided life, this life that's wholly devoted to God? What does that life look like, practically speaking? Think about that as you read through the book. So read through the whole book this week. And then second and and really the most important of these steps, um, I'd ask you to join with me in prayer. Join with me in praying that God will use the book of James to transform us, to change us, to grow us, to be more like Jesus. Um, If he doesn't, then this is going to be just a complete waste of time this semester. James isn't about information. It's about transformation. The goal is to change us to be people who are wholly devoted, completely devoted to him. So join me in praying for that. I'm praying that for myself, just so you know. Uh, There's nothing quite as convicting as having to preach the book of James. I feel like a failure every time I open this book. Please join with me in praying that James would convict us and challenge us and help us to grow, to be wholly devoted to God. And then third, as we go through the book of James, it will mean a lot more to you if you are connected here to the family of grace. If you really want to see your life changed and transformed, if you want to see yourself grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to get connected with the people of God. Church is is a lot more than Sunday mornings. Church is a family. 
where we join with one another to encourage one another, to convict, challenge, and equip one another to walk with Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to get connected at Grace. Uh, There's a number of different opportunities for that. Actually, if you have your bulletin, you can pull out the insert that we threw in this morning. Um, This is our our small group insert. Best way I know of to get connected here at Grace Bible Church or really any church is to join a small group, uh, a small group that is studying God's word together. So you're gathering together around God's word to study it, to hold one another accountable, to pray for one another. Uh, You don't have to join a small group at Grace. Just join a small group somewhere, a small group walking with the Lord in his word. If you would like to join with us, we've listed out a whole bunch of options here. Any of these options will work great. Uh, I'll just mention a few. Actually, at the bottom, I'll start there. If you're a college student, especially a freshman or sophomore, we'd love to have you join our college small groups. If you join a college small group, then in years to come, you can actually grow into leading the small group and develop as a leader in God's church. Um, Another option that's at the bottom of the page that lots of folks are getting plugged into is our home churches. If you'd really rather meet in a home rather than the church, if you'd rather meet with a family, um, then home churches are a great option for you. Some of them will actually be studying James with us this semester. Some will be studying the miracles of Christ. So a couple great options there. Um, And then if you'd rather just join uh, more of a traditional men's or women's Bible study, we've listed out a whole bunch of options at either campus. So you can choose either, if you go here to Southwood, you can still go to a small group at Anderson. We're one church, even if though we're in two locations. So All of these options and a bunch more are available on our brand new website. If you'll just go to our website this afternoon, you can choose a small group, sign up for it online, get plugged in and connected so that you can grow and be transformed this semester. Now let's end by turning to the Lord in prayer and ask him to use James to grow us to be like his son. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of James. We thank you that you knew thousands of years ago that we would struggle to live undivided lives, Lord We thank you that you knew that our tendency, our temptation would be to to cling to you and at the same time to cling to the world. And Lord, you you know how destructive that is. You know that that's a life of defeat and and a life that is joyless. And so thank you for giving us this book that, that is meant to teach us and convict us and instruct us and show us how to live lives that are completely sold out to you, that are completely devoted to you. Father, we come before you in need. Lord, if if it's just us reading this book, if it's just us trying to apply it in our own strength, Lord, we're not going to get anywhere. We desperately need you and the power of your Holy Spirit to, to work in us, to transform us and change us, to break us of the sins that we hold so dear and to, to grow us in a complete and, and wholly devoted love for you. We pray, Father, that you would transform us this semester so that we would see reality as you see it, so that we would love what you love, so that we would do what you do. I pray, Father, that you would purify us and make us a people who reflect Jesus Christ to this world. I pray that we would love well, Lord. Help us, Father, to grow, all for the glory and fame of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.